Whether or not you watch a lot of films or read a lot of novels, I'm sure you'll be familiar with stories that follow this pattern. At the beginning, we're introduced to a poor, lowly character from a small, unimportant home who doesn't quite know where they fit in and what their place is. But the only thing they are sure of is their feeling that they were made for something greater. And they then embark on a journey of self-discovery. And by the end of the story, after they've achieved and accomplished everything that no one thought they could, they've now made a name for themselves. And they live happily ever after, living the high life, enjoying the success and popularity that they now have. It's a familiar story. And I'm sure you can think of many different films and TV shows and novels that follow this storyline, this narrative. And it's popular in our culture because it's so appealing and attractive, isn't it? To build up your name and build up an empire for yourselves and become great. It's funny then that that is almost the total opposite to the one Jesus said was the greatest to have lived, John the Baptist. Even though many of his followers thought that's exactly how John's story was going to go. But when we meet John the Baptist, we don't meet someone who's on a journey of self-discovery. He knows precisely who he is and what his place is and what his purpose is. When we meet John the Baptist, we don't meet someone who feels he's meant to do something greater. We meet someone who points the spotlight on someone else greater. We don't meet someone who finds life's greatest glory in elevating his reputation by taking the starring role. We meet someone who finds life's greatest glory in abandoning his reputation to the praise of the one who has taken the starring role. That's radically different, totally opposite to what the world says is great. And the passage that we read earlier, at the end of John chapter 3, we see John surrounded by people who are totally confused by that. They don't understand because in the world storyline, they don't know how this Jesus fits in with John's great story. And it leaves them arguing and puzzled and confused. But John, it seems, is the only one around who isn't confused. He knows precisely who he is. He knows precisely what his place is. And it doesn't follow the world's storyline and the world's pattern of greatness, but it follows God's pattern of greatness. And he also knows, more importantly, who Jesus is, what his place is. And above all of that, John doesn't just know these things, but he's satisfied by them. 
So before we go any further, does that describe you this evening? Fully knowing your place in God's purposes? Fully knowing Christ's place in God's purposes? And being satisfied and content and happy in that knowledge? Well, we have three very simple points this evening. First is that John knew and was satisfied with his place. Second, that John knew and was satisfied with Christ's place. And thirdly and finally is a question. Do you know and are you satisfied with your place and with Christ's place? Well, let's learn from what John knows as he talks to his confused followers. Firstly, John knew and was satisfied with his place. At the start of the passage we read earlier, John's met by his followers who are all arguing about something. They come to John and say in verse 26, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you've testified, behold, he's baptizing and people are coming to him. And of course, the man they're speaking of is Jesus. So these followers of John, they've been listening to what John has been preaching, this radical message from God of repentance and faith and baptism, and they seem to have believed it. Perhaps John is God's promised Messiah, some of them thought, who will bring his eternal kingdom to us. And for the followers of John, everything seems to be going great. The numbers are increasing, John's evangelistic plan is going smoothly, but then this guy turns up and starts baptizing people and operating on John's turf, stealing away his customers. And they say, look, he's baptizing and people are flocking to him. This man's cashing in on your act, John, you better do something. Little did they know. They were like a group of people at a concert who start complaining when the applause that was once being given to the small-time warm-up act is now being stolen away by the multi-award-winning global superstar who everyone turned up to see in the first place. John and Jesus were not in competition, were they? In their eyes, this man was a problem, but in fact, he was the solution. Had they understood that this man they were complaining about was the very Son of God, who'd come down from heaven to be the Lamb of God to bear the sins of the world, then all of their protest against Jesus would have surely turned into praise for Jesus. You see, Jesus' fame wasn't an obstacle to John's ministry. Jesus' fame was the objective of John's ministry. That was John's place. They didn't realise that what was happening before them was precisely what God had intended 
from the start. And that's so often the case with us, isn't it? When things appear to be going wrong, when things appear to be falling apart, in our eyes, the sovereign, gracious God has an intentional purpose for it. And so, with his followers, John has to intervene and make it precisely clear who he is and what his place is. Verse 27. It will help if you have the passage open in front of you. John chapter 3, verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. This isn't simply my own accomplishment, John says. All of these people receiving my message and being baptised isn't through my skills, it isn't through my ideas. I, I would receive no followers, no welcome, no reaction. I wouldn't even receive the message to preach if it hadn't been given by God. I wonder, do you think the same way John thinks? When things go well for you, do you think the same way John thinks? That you can only receive anything good if God decides that it is to be yours. Do you tend to congratulate yourself, pat yourself on the back? Or do you have a clear mind like John has here? A man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. Verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. See, John's already spoken to them and the Jewish leaders in chapter 1 about who he is and what his place is, but they haven't taken it in. John chapter 1, verse 19. You might want to flick back if you have a Bible. Chapter 1, verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Someone might say then, how silly of John's followers. John's told them more than once, plain as day, who he is, what his place is, and they don't accept it. What's wrong with them? I wonder, when you and I hear things from the Bible, is our reaction often the same? When we hear truth, is our reaction often the same? Do you hear what the Word of God teaches you and reorient your thinking to line up with that? Or do you hear it, but then continue in your own wisdom and your own understanding, the things that seem best to you? Well, John, the writer, carries on in John chapter 1, verse 22. Then they said to him, the leaders, that is, said to John, Who are you? 
that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, and notice that he doesn't give himself a name or a title. He's just simply a voice, a nameless voice. I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Before John the Baptist was even born, God wrote that prophecy through Isaiah. And then 700 years, give or take, later, God is here fulfilling that prophecy through John. And God's place for John was for him to be a voice, for him to be a witness. And we read earlier on in chapter 1, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came as a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And so when Jesus appears, John joyfully points to him and says, here he is, here is the lamb, here is the light the one you've been waiting for, the one who will take away the sin of the world. The very purpose of John's place was to point to another place. Totally against what the world thinks is great. Back in chapter 3, verse 28, John replies, you bear yourselves you, sorry, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. See, John knows his place. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm not the man of the hour. I'm not the main attraction, the star of the show. That place belongs to someone else. No one's looking at me. The attention is rightly on the groom and his bride. Now we have a saying in English, don't we? Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Now there's a sense in which as Christians, that ought to be true of us. Not in terms of marriage, but in terms of reputation. Would it be right for an usher or a bridesmaid or a best man to divert people's eyes away from the groom and the bride and turn all the attention towards themselves and make the day about them? Of course not. Their place is not to ensure that they are celebrated, but to ensure that the bride and groom are celebrated. And that is your place, Christian. That was John's place. Not for us to have people celebrating us, but instead to ensure that Christ is celebrated as he ought to be. But notice something radical John says. And perhaps this is the difference between you and him. 
See, you can bring the attention towards the bride and groom and do it grudgingly. You can have the attention fall away from you and placed on them and be bothered by it. But look at John. I am the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him and rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. It's perfect. It's complete. How can you get joy from nobody appreciating your actions? Because they're appreciating Christ instead. Because instead of appreciating you, they're appreciating the light of the world, the Lamb who takes away sin, the greatest person to ever live. That's where John's joy and your joy and my joy comes from. So when you're doing things or saying things as a Christian or refraining from doing and saying things, and that action puts the spotlight on Jesus and takes it away from you, are you content with that? Even if no one admires you, are you content with that? Surely that's what John means in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Christ must become greater and increase in the eyes of men and women and boys and girls. Why? Because he is the greatest thing. He's infinitely greater than John. He is the one we need to see as being great. Because if we don't, and if we don't belong to him, then we have no hope of forgiveness of our sins and having them taken away. And so just like John, we say, he must increase, I must decrease. Even if the attention never falls on you, even if no one thanks you for your service, even if no one commends you for what you do as a Christian, even if no one recognizes your efforts, but they do admire Christ, surely that isn't a loss. Surely that isn't losing. That is gain. That is winning. Will you be happy with that and content with that as John was? Because not only did John know that this was his place, he was satisfied with that being his place. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was tempting for John to become proud and self-important. Put yourself in his shoes. Picture yourself as John. Think of this, that after thousands of years and hundreds of prophets speaking God's covenant to the millions of believers in him, God's now going to establish a brand new promise, a brand new covenant 
that will change everything for the millions of believers that will follow for thousands of years. And you are the one right at the center, right at the fulcrum of this huge shift in history. And you are the one at the center of that. And everyone is flocking to hear you. And everyone is listening to you. Everyone is hanging on your words and accepting your teaching. And some of them are even saying to you, are you the Christ, this high and mighty king we've been waiting for? Surely it was tempting for John to think of and gaze on his own greatness and promote his own glory and his own name. That's what the devil did, isn't it? Surely that was his heart and his attitude and his desire to seek his own glory and his own greatness. And wouldn't the characters in those films and novels, wouldn't they accept that admiration? That's what they've been seeking the whole time. But John, even though he was surely tempted by it, even though those thoughts surely crossed his mind, was joyful, joyful in seeing himself become less so that Christ could be seen as great. Such is what God tells us greatness actually is. And surely that's what Paul meant when he wrote the words, to live is Christ. What is it to live? What does it mean to live? To live is Christ. To live isn't to get ahead and to promote you. True living is Jesus being increased and becoming greater in your heart and in others' hearts through you. John knew his place, a humble, self-lowering witness of the light of the world. And in fact, it's because John knew Christ's place that he then understood his own. And so that brings us to our second point. John knew and was satisfied with Christ's place. He knew exactly who Christ was, where he had come from, exactly what he was to do, exactly what Christ's position in the universe was, and it was a delight to him. Let's see what we can learn from John by what he speaks to his followers about Christ. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. But he who comes from heaven is above all. Now, if you're anything like me, and I know that you are, then your familiarity with this can often completely numb you to how astounding and extraordinary and phenomenal this truly is. 
Look at what John is saying. He's making a very clear distinction. He's saying there are some people who are from earth and belong to the earth. That's obvious, isn't it? But then John's saying there's one who isn't from earth, but he's from above. Picture yourself being in John's crowd, listening to this wild-looking street preacher saying that he is bearing witness to someone who isn't from earth. It's almost ludicrous. It's fanciful. It's impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. And not even what seems impossible to you can stand in God's way of accomplishing what he wills to do. And because Christ is from above, that means he is above all else. If you were working in an office and your colleague gave you some news about the company that you work for, you might listen to them. You probably might not take them too seriously. But if one day someone from the head office comes to give you news about the company, you're going to listen. Why? Because they've come from a different place. They've come from a place above. And so when they speak, you better listen. And so John is saying, everyone who's from earth belongs to the earth, just speaks to someone who's from the earth. But someone who's not from earth, someone who's from above, from heaven, they're above all things. And so when he speaks, we have to listen. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Jesus is not who many people think he is. Jesus' place is not the place that most people in the world assign to him. He's not a guru or a teacher or a priest or a leader or a philanthropist or a role model. That's not his place. He doesn't speak as someone who's from the earth like you or I, with our own wisdom and our own ideas. He speaks the words of God himself. Are you satisfied with that being Jesus's place? Or does your heart kick against that? John found it satisfying. And the very fact that John includes the fact that Jesus has words to speak tells us that he obviously has a message for us. There's something we need to know from him. And what did he come to proclaim to us? What is his message to us? Well, it ultimately revolves around your place before God. Because in your sin, you have chosen the place of an enemy of God. And because of God's place, which is high and holy, the greatest place that could possibly exist, being good and perfect and holy and just and kind and pure, his wrath must fall 
upon you. But then what's Jesus' place in this? He stooped down to your place. From his place of glory to your place of sin. In order that you would trust in him and bank on him to pay your debt as he dies and give you a new place as he rises. In his own words, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has everlasting life and will not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He came to make himself known as the one John declared him to be, the Lamb of God. That is his place. And he speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure, meaning God has not just measured out part of his Spirit to give to Christ, to give to his Son, to dwell in him. But as Paul writes in Colossians, in Christ dwells the fullness of the Godhead, bodily, in bodily form. If that statement were true of you, I think it would literally be mind-blowing. How could our finite minds and bodies contain the infinite God? But with Jesus, things are different. Why? Because he's not like us. He's not of the earth. He is from heaven. That is his place. Verse 35. The Father loves the Son. God isn't just cold and unfeeling and statue-like. He's good and tender and compassionate and kind. And his love leads him to act. And it's out of love that he does what he does. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. John wants his followers to fully grasp what he's saying. Jesus isn't simply one with a bit more authority than John. Jesus has all authority. And one of the final things Jesus said after his resurrection, before he ascended, was all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That pretty much covers everything, doesn't it? That's all inclusive. There's not a single thing. There's not a single person. There's not a single circumstance. There's not a single blessing. There's not a single tragedy that falls outside 
of Jesus' authority. You may have seen news stories or detective dramas where there's a criminal on the run, but they flee to a place outside of the police's jurisdiction, a place where the police no longer have authority and it's no longer their territory and all their power is useless. Will that ever happen with Jesus? Can that ever happen with Jesus? Never. There is no place, no person outside of his authority. No one, no thing in all of creation that's outside of his authority, outside of his remit, outside of his jurisdiction. He is above all and over all things, including you. And because of that, He's the one to whom we must answer for the place we have chosen. But he's also the one who gives us the answer to deal with the situation we've chosen. Jesus isn't simply one we should run away from in desperation. He's the one we must run to with desperation. And so with that, let's consider our last point, which is a question for each of us to consider this evening. Do you know and are you satisfied with your place and Christ's place? Do you know what your place is? Do you know what your place is in relation to Christ's place? And I'm going to say far more importantly, are you satisfied with them? Do you know your place? That in your rebellion and your own sin, you've chosen that place of God's enemy and perhaps you're still there. Do you know Christ's place? This Lamb of God, born to die, born to take away the sin of all those who will bank on him their whole life long, to pay their debt, to change their place permanently into being forgiven and adopted and believing. And as we look at John's answer here, There are two things he says that make it clear that there are only two kinds of people. John knew what he was of the two. And it's vital that right here you understand which you are. Look at verse 32. And what he, Jesus, has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. Have you received his testimony? Yes, you've heard it. Maybe for decades you've heard it. But do you receive it? Gladly, 
as being true? Yes, you've heard that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yes, you've heard that Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be, sorry, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Yes, you've heard that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, will live. And yes, you've heard that Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and will not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. But hearing it is one thing. Being familiar with it is one thing. Have you received it as the truth or not? They are the options. Someone might think, there's no consequence to which of those two I am. It doesn't make a difference if I walk out this room being one or the other. I carry on with my life as normal. But the next thing John says reveals that there is a consequence even to how each of us walk out this room. Understanding which of these two you are will affect the person you are who walks out the room. And you'll walk out the room with one of these two consequences. It won't simply affect you in a few years from now. It won't simply affect you when you're old. It won't simply affect you when you're about to die. It affects you today. Let's see how. Verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. That affects you right now. You could be on your way out of the building and be hit by a bus and die. You could fall down dead with a brain aneurysm that you never knew about. And yet you're safe. How? Because you have everlasting life. You've received Jesus' words when he said, the one who believes in me will live even though he dies. And because you've believed it, received it and satisfied by it, it applies to you. And so as John wrote in chapter one, the true light gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him but the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right. No one can receive anything if not from heaven. He gave the right to become the children of God. Is that you? It needs to be you. You have no hope if it is not you. 
or verse 36, he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. That affects you right now. The wrath, or we could say the righteous anger, or the just hatred of God will rest upon you heavier than it did when you sat down. Why? Because you've heard about your place and what it can become and you're not satisfied by that. You've heard of Jesus' place and you're not satisfied by that. And your life is instead one that declares all I do, all I think, all I desire, I do to increase me. So I become greater. And all I do, all I think, I desire decreases Christ so he becomes less. And I'm happy with that. Like a a dark cloud hanging over you, or, or an infected wound, the wrath of God abides on you, growing and darkening and building and worsening. Doesn't that fill you with dread? That your sin and God's wrath isn't removed? But how glorious is it that it can be that your sin can be removed that God's wrath can be removed and placed instead on Christ and he dies and buries it never to be seen again either you suffer the end of staying in your place of sin or Christ takes you out of your place and suffers it for you giving you a brand new place where there's no condemnation we don't have to achieve some higher place of glory or some lifted up place of goodness the place has already been bought for you by Christ at the cost, the cost of his life for you to simply receive. John knew his place. Do you know yours? John knew Christ's place. Do you know his? John was satisfied and content and joyful because of both. Are you?